Did you apply to be an astronaut? What? You didn't know there's open applications to be an astronaut right now. I don't want to be an astronaut. I like being on Earth. I thought with all your Kerbal Space Program experience, you'd be a good candidate. I mean, my Kerbals die, like, a lot. Okay, so maybe not then. I went through, yeah. for some reason, I got it in my head. Like, I just kept going one level deep, and then one level deeper, I got to, like, the actual job description, which I thought was kind of funny because it had a, um, there's a bullet point for it for requiring frequent travel, which is kind of amusing <laughs> to me. Um, and then I just kept going, and I was like, well, what does it take to actually apply? And then I was like, oh, I got to register for this account. So I registered for the account, and then I was like, okay, oh, it has. To, I have to create a resume? Well, I guess I could just copy and paste what I have on LinkedIn. So I went through that process, and then that was kind of a pain in the butt, and then, like, at, at like the second job description, I was like, why am I like, I'm, I'm not, they're not going to make me an astronaut. What am I doing? But I kept going. And then it was like, you need a transcript. You need to submit your college transcript. So what did I do? I went off to my college website, paid them $2 and 50 cents to get my actual transcript. And, and I was like, well, I guess I'm doing this now. I guess I'm applying to be an astronaut. So um, are you going to space? Have you heard back? I haven't heard back. The applications don't close until February, but uh, I'm, did I'm it not. give you like a, we'll get back to you shortly message? Yeah. Yeah. That kind of thing. Um, Maybe they'll send me an actual letter. That'd be nice. Na <laughs> on NASA letterhead that says, uh, ha ha, no thanks. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. I don't know. I mean, like, presumably they train their astronauts. So other than the NASA astronaut training, which you can only really get if you're training to be an astronaut, like, what would it take? I think you'd probably have to be a lot smarter than I am. You probably would have had to do a lot better in school than I did. What were the prereqs on that? Did they list any? Uh, you just had, you, there are some prerequisites like for you have to have a very specific, not a very specific college degree, but you have to have like a science, like call it, computer science is one of the degrees that you could have. So I, I fulfilled that. And then it was like at least three years of progressively responsible jobs or a thousand hours of flight time, which <laughs> clearly I don't have a thousand hours of flight time. But I wonder if hot air balloon flight counts. <laughs> of course. Why wouldn't it? So, you know, maybe we could combine our powers and be an ideal candidate. Um, so about a week or two ago, as we're recording this, I shipped Scenic version 1.0.0, which is pretty exciting. It's the first time I, I shipped like version one of a library that is actually my own code and not a wrapper around something that I anticipate a number of people actually using and that I'm getting a good deal of use out of. Um, I've maintained other people's code for a long time. So it was pretty exciting and interesting to decide like, yeah, let's put the, let's go ahead and call this 1.0. So what does 1.0 mean for you? Ah, yeah. For Scenic. For Scenic, what it means is we're using this in production and I'm committed to this. Like I feel good enough about this API to say, I think you could use it too. Right. And I am not going to needlessly break backward compatibility. Like from this point on, if I'm going to break backward compatibility, I have to have a, a, a good enough reason to tell you that you need to make changes in your app to accommodate that. Right. And I think, you know, we, we actually got into a discussion about semantic versioning offline a couple weeks ago surrounding that that like there's a lot of talk about people saying who care like npm somebody mentioned that npm when you start a new library with npm it starts you off at version 1.0 right you get no pre-release and there was some back and forth about how like i would think that's pretty presumptuous right that you're gonna get your you're gonna nail your 1.0 release the minute you push to github or npm right 
and other people saying, well, who cares? You're going to continually make changes as long as you keep bumping that major version when you make breaking changes. What does it matter? And I think the truth lies somewhere in the middle, as usual. Like, you can't just keep bumping the major version because nobody wants to use a library that they just have to constantly chase breaking changes on. Right. That is what the zero point is for, saying, like, hey, this is a thing and you can use it. I mean, if it's not usable or if it's dangerous, like, you probably shouldn't be pushing it to public package repositories in the first place. But if it's up there and it's zero point, I mean, that is, in my mind, saying, hey, this is there and usable and, like, it might be useful to you, but, yeah, you're going to be chasing breaking changes, and if you're okay with that, then cool. Right, and I'm ready to go, like... You know, I'm at point one today, and it might be, or I'm at point zero zero point one today, and it might be zero point two tomorrow, and it might be an entirely different API. Like I make no guarantees at all. I'm not going again. I'm not going to needlessly break things, but I'm also like assuming that people who are using this are they they've taken the signal. But I don't know if that's something you can actually rely on in Ruby, right? Because we've talked about this before. There's a lot of gems that are zero point. Like if you open your gem file right now, there's a lot of very well established gems that are sitting at zero point whatever. Yeah, MySQL, the MySQL 2 gem, which is what everybody using MySQL with Rails is using, is 0.4.2 right now. Right. So technically they're not. I, and I think I think that's a mixture of either people just don't know that, like, people are trying to follow semantic versioning and they miss the two points in semantic versioning that talk very specifically about everything being pre-1.0 pre, everything pre does not define your public API. Or they're just hesitant to call a 1.0 because then they're committed. Right. Um, I mean, I think it's more of the latter, which that they're, yeah, hesitant. they're hesitant, they're afraid that they, they don't want to they don't want to commit to not making breaking changes, which I mean, you're not committing to not br- make breaking changes. You're just committing to bumping your major version if you want to make breaking changes. Right. And and hopefully considering the impact that's going to have on users, you know, at this point, I'm looking at the scenic repo right now. We haven't actually announced it anywhere other than talking about a little bit on this podcast and a couple of tweets but we didn't do i haven't done the blog post yet i'm going to push that put that out soon when i get some time to write it um start talking about why you might want to use something like this it's got 156 stars it has uh what do we got for contributors seven contributors five we've done five releases there's 83 there's not a lot of commits there's not a lot of activity so like right now if, if i still came across something that i was like oh we should go right to 2.0 forget it it would still be it wouldn't be a huge impact for people so i think you have to kind of consider that as well like how many people and and you don't have good numbers on how many people are using your gem you have how many downloads you get on ruby gems and how much activity you have on github but that's gonna have to suffice i guess yeah do we have this on ruby gems like where it shows you downloads by day or is it just total downloads of all time i think if you log into ruby gems it shows you a histogram okay because i mean like that gives you also decent if you if you filter down to like how many downloads do you get in a given week, that's a decent indicator of usage as well. But of course, it always also just depends on like how many times do new developers set up their machines for an existing app or stuff like that. Right. If they did give you a histogram, they no longer do. I don't know if I don't know when the redesign happened, if that fell out, or if I'm just misremembering that being there. But to your point about the. Uh, that you don't think going to 2.0 right now would have that big of an impact because you don't think you have that many users. Like, that does all come into a bigger formula, I guess, right, of breaking changes cost your users. That is, in my opinion, an undeniable fact. If you make a breaking change, it's going to have an impact on your users. And not making that breaking change, generally speaking, if you want to make it, then not making that change has some cost on you. If it's maintenance burden or an API you're unhappy with or what have you, 
really the only time you should make a breaking change is when the cost to you so significantly outweighs the cost to your users that it's just like, how can you not make this? Or if the cost to you is, if it's like a confusing API and the cost to your users is absurdly huge there as well, right? And so part of what quantifies the cost to your users is also a function of how many users you have. If you have three users, then... Well, you could probably actually go on Twitter and say, hey, you three, you cool with this change? Awesome, <laughs> I'm making it, uh, which is what I did but, uh, but, uh, in before I released 0.1 of Diesel when I had like two or three users. I'd ask them, I'd get uh, feedback on every breaking change, right. right? But it's very unlikely, in my opinion, once you have an established user base of any size, that the maintenance burden on you of not making some breaking change actually outweighs the cost to your users. I'm not saying it never happens. It certainly happens sometimes, but right. very rarely. And there's there's a couple so I have a couple points I wanted to make about that. One is an agreement with you in that like a lot of people will say like, well they can continue to use version 1.0. I'm moving on to version 2.0. Which is okay and I feel like that's an okay argument depending on the type of library you have, right? If you're making a Rails plugin of some sort you're only going to support the newer versions of Rails on your newer versions of your library. You're not going to go back and add, you're unlikely to go back and add Rails 5 support to your 0.x series or your 1.x series when you're on 5.x, right? Right. So that those kinds of things do force users to have to like confront these deprecations at some point and they and it's it's particularly bad if they've been like if they've if they've given up on following along with you because you're just making too many breaking changes then having to all of a sudden jump forward four major versions or five major versions or whatever the case may be because they've you know they just have to upgrade rails now is particularly onerous it's it's tough well, and ironically if rails followed semver that wouldn't be a problem why is that well if okay let me let me rephrase if rails followed semver and uh wasn't so gung ho with breaking changes so that the major version rarely if ever got bumped right then it wouldn't matter. Like a gem that's compatible with latest released major, which if we're following Semver, as long as the major doesn't change, you continue to be compatible. Right. And it probably wouldn't, it also wouldn't be, if you combined like strictly following Semver with smaller releases, I feel like it's a little, it's a little bit easier to get a handle on. Like, oh, okay, fixing this security issue ended up, like the best way to fix the security issue ended up being bumping the major version. Right. Right. That's fine. I take that one update. Cool. We move on. And then if like the next release is six weeks later and it's got three or four different changes in it, a couple of them are breaking, like rather than a year and a half worth of breaking changes piling up and you being like, okay, I have to see how this impacts my app. I wonder what my test, like your first step is like, I'm going to run my test, see what deprecations I get, see what breaks. You know, it's, it's just not, it's a less smooth experience. But then I also talk to people who are in writing Ember apps right now who feel tremendously pressured to keep up with deprecations in their app that they're seeing when from these frequent releases. So it kind of cuts both ways. It's interesting. Well, and, that, and that's the, the, the argument, too, is that you shouldn't be making breaking changes all the time and bumping your major all the time. You should be deprecating things if you're going to make a breaking change. And then, yeah, once every year or so, bump your major version and do all the garbage collection of your deprecations. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if you're gonna, but that doesn't make it any easier in the long run, right? You're still making a breaking change. You're just making life a little bit easier for people following along who don't necessarily want to fix every deprecation right the second. Yeah, I mean, right, that like it really just comes down to it. Stop making so many breaking changes. Well, I feel like in the early days of something trying to be as ambitious as like Ember, right? They have to just continually, like, 
there are a lot of people who say, I'm not going to use this until it's 1.0, right? Until it's or until it's deemed production ready. So you got to get to a 1.0. But if things are changing fast on your foot, then you have to be able to react to that or you're just going to lose users, right? And if you want people to use your library, you think you have the best ideas, the best foundation, you want to be able to re react quickly to whatever. <laughs> react quickly to react. Uh... See what I did there? And being able to do that, like I, I feel like there's still a distinction between... A lot, there's probably still a distinction between a library that is 1.0 and a library that is stable. Is that fair? Sure, but that's not the purpose of a version number. Like, put in your readme, hey, we're moving fast and breaking things. Or just, with, in the case of something like Ember, right, it becomes incredibly obvious from the culture very early on. Like, this is a library that doesn't care as much about stability and wants to move fast, and you're going to be chasing them. Right. But that's not necessarily the purpose of the version number, right? The version number is just there to say is code written against version X compatible with version Y? Right. So I, I think like if I got into a little bit more specifics about Scenic, I actually have a couple of things that I think would be applicable to this discussion. It'd be interesting to see how, because I have ideas on how I want to handle them, but I'm not sold on them either. So like just an overview, we talked briefly about Scenic before, but basically it came out of Caleb Thompson and I worked on, and you worked on the T1D project that we talk about often. And one of the things it had was like full text search across different models. And the way we and it used Postgres for that, not like Elasticsearch or something like that. And the way we accomplished that was, um, we'll link to a blog post in the show notes. But we essentially created a view of all the things that we wanted to search, and then indexed the tables that underlied those view under underlied, <laughs> under yeah sure underlaid. Uh, we indexed something like that. We indexed the tables that were under those views with full text, you know, indexes. Forget exactly what they're called. And then we were able to search against that. We wrote an active model against that view that searches that view. And that worked pretty well. We had to switch our, our schema format to SQL because Rails schema number doesn't support views out of the box. At the time, there was like schema plus, which did support like a create view statement in your migrations, but it also support, it also had a bunch of other stuff that was rolled up in it. They've since broken those out. So we considered using that, but even still, it didn't support versioning those views. So like the, if you wrote the first version of your search view and then you'd added a new type of thing that you wanted to search to the view and you wanted to rev your view, there was no easy way to say like, oh, create a new version of this view, keep the old schema around in case I want to roll back to it, but here's the new version, right? So you, what we ended up having to do was like we'd create a, a migration in the up migration, do the execute that defined our SQL, that defined our view, and then in the down migration, do an execute that copied the previous schema and made the, you know, reverted the view back to what it was. So that was the very simple idea of what was what that came from was like, what if we had some generators that create created versioned SQL files, kind of like migrations that say like searches v1, searches v2.sql. And then your create view statement, you said create view, and it went off and it looked for version one. And then you could say like create view v2 and you looked for version two and like create view was automatically reversible by the schema command recorder or whatever they call it. So all of that stuff is stuff you get with, with scenic. That's basically what we built. So it integrates with the schema dumper. So you don't have to switch to your format to SQL. It has generators so you can generate SQL view definitions that stand apart from your actual migrations. So in your migrations, you say create view searches, um, drop view searches, and then update view searches, and you give it the, uh, the version you want to update to. And it knows to look in slash db slash views, and then it looks for the view name, underscore, version, whatever. 
Um, the, the readme describes this better than I could, so we'll link to that in the show notes. Um, so that was the basic idea of it. Uh, did I explain that well enough? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So we very quickly, like, we, we kind of drew a line, like, we wanted the generators to work, and then we the last thing we wanted to do was support materialized views. So we had support for materialized views, and then, like, what I did at that point, having learned my lesson from clearance, was... I went through the whole code base and documented everything that I thought was public and explicitly marked things as private that I knew were private. Uh, like you, we decided to ship with Postgres support only out of the box. And that I felt like there's already been, there was already one PR about MySQL support. We've gotten a couple of like questions about MySQL support. And both Caleb and I have had experience maintaining gems that have adapters that we don't use. And it's not fun, right? Those adapters right. tend, like Caleb did it with Gridler. I did it a little bit with Clearance. Clearance has, doesn't, not really an adapter, but it has password strategies that just went stale and were broken and nobody told me and they were unused and until somebody opened an issue. <laughs> um, and Caleb had adapters for Gridler, which is like a thing that interfaces with various mail services like Mailgun and SendGrid and all those. And if we aren't using them, it's hard for us to know when there are problems and then it's it really stinks that we're responsible <laughs> for fixing those problems right. so our decision at least at at least at 1.0 is to kind of like document the api that we expect adapters to adhere to and then tell people if they want to create scenic mysql that depends on scenic and sets the adapter that's fine like there's public api to change the adapter and all that stuff so that was one thing we've kind of sidestepped is the need like we support adapters but we don't write them ourselves it turns out the adapters are pretty simple. So I may, like if somebody writes a MySQL adapter and they support it well and it gets usage, like, and they're okay with pulling it back into the tree, then maybe we'll do that. But it remains to be seen. So once we announced 1.0 and like I tweeted it out, I think you tweeted it out, but we never did like an announcement, but I definitely saw an uptick in usage just based on the issues I was seeing and a couple pull requests I saw. So it seems like people do wait to see if like are you gonna do like ooh one point at least one point is it's at least marketing right <laughs> that says like oh I should take a look at this thing again um, so people did take a look at it and we got some pretty interesting problems right off the bat so one is that we didn't consider views that depend on other views so if you have you know I don't, I'm trying to have having trouble coming up with this example but basically if you have one view that selects from another view inside of it we just dump the views in alphabetical order. We don't oh. consider the actual dependencies of the view. So I was like, okay, well, we won't do that. We'll just dump the views in insertion order, right? We can, we can ask Postgres to give it to us in the order that they were created. That doesn't work, though, because you could, you could if you had um, view B that depends on view A, right? You probably would have done create view A, create view B, but then you might have at some point done, you might have dropped the original view and then recreated it. So I was thinking, okay, maybe that's not actually going to work. I'm gonna have to think. I'm gonna have to think through this one now. Like we're gonna have to think through like a depends on syntax that we're gonna have to tell. That or if it's based on insertion order, but you maintain it separately so that dropping and recreating the view doesn't modify the insertion order. Like if in your DSL you're maintaining some sort of metadata table where you're inserting it there, that could work as well, right? Right. We decided not to do that. We wanted the entire like with version 1.0. We were like, we think we can do this without keeping like a scenic metadata table. Um, so we do this entirely on the file system. Oh, okay. So that that might be one of the solutions. The other solution is like Postgres actually has data on what each object in your system depends on. And in <clears> fact, <throat> I ran into another issue which is kind of related to this one just yesterday when I created so I 
I have a table that had like, say, five columns on it. And one of them was a counter column that was a counter cache column. Then I created a view of that data that kind of obsoleted the counter cache. And so then, so I was like, okay, after I created that view, I was like, oh, I no longer need the counter cache. So then I created another migration that said drop column that counter cache. And Postgres complained because it knew that my view was written with select star. And so my view depended on that column. So it would not let me drop that column until I dropped the view first, dropped the column, and then recreated the view. So already I'm starting to see some like usages. Like I had used this a lot, but then all of a sudden I just start like <laughs> figures like once I was like, yeah, this is 1.0. I started to see some things I was like, oh, actually, maybe we do need to maintain some semblance of schema somewhere. Right. Um, and maybe we need big, like maybe we just live with Postgres telling you that you can't drop this column because it's used in a view and then you have to go figure out what you have to go and edit the view yourself. Or is it something that like we catch that and then drop the view for you and recreate? It's like, oh, that it's... seems a little too magic. <laughs> right. I don't know. Like That's... this is, I, I have similar issues with star in diesel. One of the biggest ones being that for performance reasons, I always go off of columns by order, not by column name. And that also lets me dodge like, oh, and then when there's a join, I have to deal with aliasing because, yeah. And I can't actually really count on the ordering of select star being anything usable. So I just never generate select star. Right. Yeah, I mean... That's what I'm coming, kind of coming to is like select star and a view is probably an anti-pattern. Or you don't least, generate or that. could be right? an anti-pattern. Users are just writing it. Right. The users are writing it. And in my case, the user was me. And the reason why I wanted it to be select star was because I actually want this thing to be a subclass of the thing it's a view of. Right. So I want all of the, ba I'll, I want all of the fields that are originally on, in this case, it's called outcomes. So I want all of the fields that are on outcome and I want my class that I'm my active record model that I'm writing that's backed by this view to be a subclass of outcomes. It just has some additional aggregate data associated to it that does. So some, will the some view things. then, because if you can't, if right, so if it's doing select start and we'll let you drop a column because you're, you're depending on it. And so that column's not referencing the where clause or anything, presumably, right? You're the only dependency is because you do select star that seems like it kind of freezes the meaning of star there then like yeah. if you add a column does the view actually automatically get that new column as well no it, it appears that when you create a view in postgres if you have select star it unfurls that star to the actual because if you pull the schema back out it doesn't have select star anymore it has select all of the column names ah so that takes me back to the original issue then maybe we can just use insertion order and Postgres will tell us, like, because you'll have to insert them in the right order for Postgres to be pleased, right? Oh, yeah. Because Postgres True. would say, like, oh, no, no, you can't drop that view without dropping the one that depends on it first. And then you'd have to do them all in the right order. Um, That's true. So, I mean, it's kind of like a couple different, I, don't, I wouldn't say anti-patterns, but smells, right? So, like, views that, views that are based on other views are kind of smelly, except you could make an argument that, particularly for like materialized views, it's totally fine because materialized view is a table. And then select star may be kind of a smell, even though there's good reasons to do it. If you don't have a good reason to do it, avoid it. Because, <laughs> you know, the, particularly the reason why I wanted to do select star is I don't want to have the opposite problem, which is like we add a column to outcomes and it's not in my view until I refresh, until I refresh. But un unfortunately, 
that is going to be the problem because as we talked about, Postgres just bakes in the actual schema for the view when you do select star. Just monkey patch add column to go look and see if there's any view that accesses that table and was trying to do select star originally. Right. This is when I start thinking about how to make this a good experience, I keep coming back to like, oh, I have to monkey patch this or I have to like hook into this and everything that I'm doing is a monkey patch. Like we've talked before, there's no public API for what I'm doing. So I'm just, you know, there's some module prepend calls in there and things like that, which was alias method chain for a while. I mean, I think a lot of it's just maybe add a like refresh view method mm. that literally just ups the version or doesn't even up the version but just runs the the same creator update view that's already in that I can already pull from the schema right just literally just runs the latest version not even pull from the schema pull from your file right because if you pull from the schema it'll say select each individual column but you want the original sql file which will still say select star right but you could just run the latest version of that, and that should. It's not always the latest version, though, right? Because you could have version 5 roll back to version 4 and still have version 5 on your file system and be totally fine um, and be running at version 4. So that's well, where the... again, you just need a, you need a metadata table. <laughs> right. Or you just have, like, you could do that today just by writing, if I wrote, if I wrote uh, update view version 5, update view searches, or in this case, outcomes. So I said update view outcomes uh, version 5. It would know to look for version 5 on the file system and run that as the SQL for the for the view. So you could it doesn't actually care what version is already there. You could just keep running update view. So we could basically alias update view as refresh view. Um, yeah. You would just have to provide it the version. But Which is, I mean, I think that's fine. Let's take a quick moment to tell you about today's sponsor. It's Thinkful. Thinkful provides online design and development classes that are set apart from their competitors by their emphasis on one-on-one -on -one mentorship from experts. When you sign up for Thinkful, you'll be paired with an experienced engineer with whom you'll meet at least once per week and as you learn to build a website or application with HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and jQuery. Thinkful is a good fit for designers that want to bring their comps to life with code or beginners that want to be software engineers. They have courses for intermediate developers too that are also that are looking to pick up new tools and frameworks such as Rails, Angular, and Node. For 20% off your enrollment at Thinkful, visit thinkful.com slash bikeshed. That's T-H-I-N-K-F-U-L dot com slash bikeshed. Our thanks to Thinkful for supporting the show. There's lots of things I keep there's lots of reasons I keep coming back to that metadata table. And that's why the semantic versioning discussion brought that up in my mind. Is like it's a thing I think I want to do, and it's definitely a breaking change. How? Because I'm going to write the adapters such that they expect to have that table there, right? So if you have... Let me, let me try and spell this out here. Let me think this through before I start talking. <laughs> so right now, the way the, schema, the way the schema dumping part works, because we don't have a metadata table, it goes to Postgres and says, give me all the views. And then it creates v it, it does create view statements in your DB schema file and then dumps the actual SQL pulled from the database for that view. Well, don't you need to ask the adapter for all the views? Yes. So if you're if the Postgres adapter expects the metadata table to be there, but that's internal to the Postgres adapter, that doesn't affect your other adapters. Like they can choose to have a metadata metadata table if they want one. Right, but it's breaking what I'm saying is it's breaking for people who already are using the Postgres adapter. Again, but why? The Postgres adapter can just create the metadata table the first time it's run. Right. So not a, so. So you're saying I could have this thing. 
Like I feel like the the blessed Rails plugin way to create a table is to have your gem have a generator that creates that migration, right? So I would have like scenic install that creates the migration that creates that table for you. Yeah, but then that'd be a breaking change. So don't. So that's not necessarily <laughs> right. an option unless, so you, unless you want to bump your, your right. major. In which case, so you're saying sure. what I might want to consider is when I when I run the code that says, "Hey Postgres, give me all the views." check to see if this schema information table exists and if it doesn't just go ahead and create it yeah and i mean like and like just have a method where you, where you get the data from the schema information table and like literally any time it doesn't exist create it and populate it with the best guess mm, the best guess part really scares me cuz that could be a break like that could break somebody's app with that like i just feel like this early on i might be able to just say like yep we got some good knowledge out of more people using it because we declared it 1.0 <laughs> And, you know, this thing, this keeping the metadata table was something I was always considering, but I never had like a very, like a smoking gun of like, this is why we need it, right? It solves this specific problem. And now I think it's, I feel like maybe it's something we just need to bite the bullet on and say like, you've got to run this migration. And then I got to think about them. What is the migration path to this? I have to think through that. Like how does, if you already have create view statements in your migrations, I think what it, I think all it would be is like you install version two of scenic. You run scenic install, which has a migrate, which creates a migration that creates this table. You run your migration; that table gets created, and then the schema dumper runs, and, the and populates it with a best guess. The schema dumper runs and populates it with a best guess. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> it would have to. It would just populate it with like the most recent version of your view, and you could tell it otherwise. And just assume alphabetical order, which is what you've been doing already. Right, that could work. Or insertion order because they, I'll have to do some more tests on insertion order versus alphabetical order to see if insertion order might actually solve all these solve a good chunk of these problems. Whatever you do, though, right? Once it gets run once, the problem solved for you because then schema.rb now contains the proper ordering, and so any subsequent runs of this would not be necessarily well would either run the migrations and then everything just gets populated properly, or it runs schema.rb in which case. Well, everything still gets populated properly because the the view the create view statements will be run in the proper order. Right. The scary part for me is if I bump the version to do this, right? I bump it to 2.0, somebody installs 2.0 but does not run the migration that's necessary for version 2.0 to work and they deploy that. If they somehow get to a state where they are going to run a migration without having created that table first, it's going to blow up for them in production. If Which you I try to fine. run a migration in production and not have it tried running it in development first, but like, it could be two different developers, right? I'm just thinking through all these. See, uh, this is why the, my mind just tries to think through all of the possibilities of breaking changes, and then I get really scared. Like with clearance, I'm scared to change anything because I'm like, I'm going to break somebody's app. Um, no, but see, that's the thing. It's just a it's a question of cost to your users versus benefits to you. Right. And I think in the scenic case, not necessarily cost to my users versus benefits to me, but like cost to the users kind of in both cases, right? What's the cost to the user in keeping up with this breaking change versus the cost to the users I won't have that won't use this library because it has these problems, right? <laughs> well, I mean, I think I think you could say you need to solve these problems and then it's just like it will almost certainly be more code to magically create the metadata table and like magically populate it at exactly the right time that will presumably be more code and be harder to maintain than if you just generate a migration when they first started up right but then but it's also good because you're thinking of through the migration path in all cases like 
Yeah. This is just how all people should be when they maintain libraries. The good news is I have multiple libraries that use this. I have multiple applications that use this that I can test the migration path on. Because um, it's hard to think through, especially with the schema dumper and the command recorder and all that stuff, it's hard to think through exactly how everything's going to work. Um, this shouldn't impact the command recorder. Anyway. Yeah, so that's basically, I have a few open issues that are sitting out on Scenic, and I'm kind of like in the mode where I just don't want to think about it because I'm not sure what I want to do yet. <laughs> so I'm leaving them hanging for a little bit. Sorry, people who have opened issues. Um, I'll get back to you maybe Friday. <laughs> I'm just saying, like, this is, I think, the appropriate weight to be giving making a breaking change. All right. Good. I'm glad you agree. <laughs> I just wish more people would and and not be like, eh, this is just going to affect like three users and it's not actually that big of a deal. Yeah. The other the, like, the other thing that I'm thinking, I'm just trying to think through the reasons to do the schema, like the reason to do the metadata table in the database is like one of my biggest annoyances is when right now when you dump schema, it's totally like it's hideous what gets dumped out of there because it dumps the SQL from Postgres to say like, I don't know what specific version, I don't know what file system version of this view this is, but I do know what the actual view schema is, and it's this. So here you go, right? Right. The problem with that is that it's hideous because I can't format the SQL nicely. So your schema file has all this nice spacing until you get down to the bottom where it has create view statements. It's just like a mess of disgusting looking strings. Well, you could always just have a, I'm sure there's a SQL pretty printer. That's true. I could look up for one of those. Or once you have this metadata table, you just put out create view, view name, version, version from metadata. Right. But then I was just thinking about that. So that's what I want because uh, it solves that problem for me. But just thinking about that, going back to this whole Postgres bakes in what star means, right? So if I write a migration that has select star from posts in it and I dump the schema, so my schema is going to say, that's post version one, right? So my scenic schema table says, like, he ran create view, the current version of, he ran create view for post, the current version of post is version one. Then in the next migration, I add, a, I add a column to posts. That new column isn't on my view. But if I instantiate a new instance of my database, like create a new instance of my database, and I run db schema load, or I run my, my migrations or whatever the case right. may be, all of a sudden now it has that column. Right, and then you can write code that would pass on your machine but other developers who don't drop and recreate their database, right? Right. Other developers that don't drop and create their database, including your production environment. Right. <laughs> so, soup, like, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe there isn't a good way to do this except for, like, explicitly saying this is the, like, I don't know. What do you think? The old warning in the readme. <laughs> That's true. I mean, if nothing else, right? Like, that's your 80-20 solution. <laughs> Warning, don't write views that do select star. Bad things might happen. Yeah. Man, before we started talking about this, I was like, I'll just put the metadata table in. And then, like, as the words are coming out of my mouth, I'm having trouble because I'm thinking of all the other things that could possibly go wrong. Well, I think this is also partially Rails' fault. Like, it should just be fine. We shouldn't need to recommend, hey, do db schema load, not db migrate. If you were always just running all of your migrations, everything would be fine. Hmm. But Rails has created an environment where that's not necessarily recommended because migrations can change meaning. People do bad things like reference code from their migrations. Right. Yeah. There's nothing we can do about that. <laughs> yeah. Anyway... 
if I haven't sold you on Scenic already, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how I'm possibly going to sell you on it. It is interesting. Like I've been, and it's partially because I am maintaining this library that creates views, but like I've been finding more and more like anytime I'm writing a complicated active record query, I'm just like, like could this just be a view with a model? Probably. And there's places where I've solved a lot of like tricky n plus one queries by just being like, what if I created a view of this data? And then I can select from that view. And the database has to do all that querying anyway, but it's a lot faster at it than Active Record's going to be doing multiple round trips and then iterating over the loop to get some additional data for each one of those things. Like when you start thinking about them from a SQL point of view, it's more interesting. What I found though is that like in the span of the last five years or so where I've done more Rails programming with an ORM than I have written raw SQL, a lot of my SQL skills have deteriorated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because I used to be a, like, I used to be good at being like, oh, okay, well, then I'll just have a subquery here that does this, and I'll join to it from this, and blah, blah, blah. We'll do this, and then we'll call it, we'll group by, and then this and that, and the other thing. And now I get an error back from SQL that says, like, you can't select a column that doesn't appear in the group by. And I'm like, what do I do? What's, like, well, that's do also a Postgres only thing. I don't think so. No, no you can't. it is. My SQL will just give you back nonsense. Oh, well. <laughs> Then I think I'd prefer an error than nonsense. <laughs> I agree. No, but like literally, because it, it makes sense, right? If you do select users.something, post.name, group by users.something, like there are lots of names that I could choose to show you. So Postgres gives you an error, like, hey, I don't actually know what to do here in my SQL. I don't know if it gives you the first one or if it just picks it random. My gut wants to say it gives you the first one because... Picking out random would be insane, but my SQL does lots of things that I would qualify as insane. Absolutely. One other thing, though, when when I'm in these sorts of situations that I tend to do is uh, I just push up a branch, and there's usually at least a handful of users, like power users, that I I frequently communicate with. I'm be like, hey guys, or if it's somebody requesting this feature, you know, pull them in the loop. Hey, people who I know want this feature, like. Can you try pulling down this branch and just poking it as much as you can and try and break it and see if this serves your 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 needs like a, a, any feedback on the API or let me know how usage goes and if they work in open source apps that's even better cuz then you can actually see like the code that they wrote to use the feature but very few people do right you can also feature gate things i mean it's a little harder to do well, it's hard to do in anything because I don't know of any language that gives feature gating support for libraries. But like, you can always include it in a release, but require some explicit opt-in to be able to use it. Yeah, explicitly exclude it from your public API. Right. It is part of me is wishing like I discovered all these things before I said it was 1.0, but part of me also knows I would not have discovered them before I said they were 1.0 because there's a certain subset of users who just aren't going to use it in reality right. until I'm ready to publicize it, and I'm not ready to publicize it until it's 1.0. This is a nasty circle. <laughs> but, I mean, right, that's, that's ultimately what it comes down to is that as long as you're, like, the painful part is not wanting to make a painful breaking change for your users, because bumping it to 2.0 ultimately doesn't matter. Like, if it's, a, if it's a trivial, if the cost to your users is absurdly low, like, yeah, you bump, you're bumping your major and it doesn't matter. I think like, for all practical purposes, if I decided to do this, if we decided to make a, a breaking change to accommodate this, whatever that would be, if it's that schema table or whatever, in all practical purposes, the migration process would be like install the gem, run this migration, redump your schema, you're done. Doesn't seem too bad. Yeah. There are just corner cases that we've discussed that it could go awry on, and we'd have to like write some 
documentation on those probably beta <laughs> yeah I mean, point point beta one that's <laughs> true that's true have people run the beta i don't have enough they, users for people to run the beta well yeah, well, like you said, there's all we do have a few people who are very who are more engaged on issues, and we could probably reach out to them and be like, "Hey, try this. Tell me how it goes. Don't push any code with it. Just tell me how it goes." But like as a, as just an example, though, on the like major version, not equal major pain. Our spec is is thinking about uh, possibly releasing our spec four pretty soon. The uh, only breaking changes in RSpec 4 would be the gem spec would change to no longer support Ruby 1.8.7 or Rails 3.0. Right. Neither of those actually mean that like you couldn't use it on 1.8. Well, you wouldn't be able to use it with Rails 3.0. I don't think Ruby Gems actually enforces the Ruby version. Maybe it does, but like, there's nothing that would necessarily stop. They're not going to then all of a sudden go change all of their code to drop support for 187, but they'll basically be removing it from the build. But like, right, if you're using Ruby 187, which means you're using Rails pre four, and if you're still using Rails 3.0 and you're using RSpec with those, well, then you're stuck on RSpec three. But I really doubt that that actually affects terribly many people. The biggest, I mean, I think the biggest people who will be affected are Bundler who, if I recall, do use RSpec for their test suite. And Bundler does still support Ruby 187. Right. But Bundler's also been talking about maybe pretty soon dropping 187 support, so this might just be the thing that pushes them over the edge. Yeah, we had an interesting conversation about that here with Prem, who maintains maintains appraisal, which is kind of like, I don't know how to say it, like a local Travis matrix kind of thing, <laughs> right? Have you seen appraisal? Yeah, yeah. So it's where you can run, you give it several gem files and you tell it which versions of Ruby you want to run those gem files against and it run it runs the whole matrix for you, right? As part of your test suite. And a while ago, Prem went for, went back and added support for 187 after it had been removed. And I remember being like, this is crazy. Why are you doing this? And he made the point, which was a very good point, that like, this is a system tool. It's It's built in Ruby because it was convenient for me to build it in Ruby, but it should just run regardless of whatever version of ruby it doesn't actually have like why not why not let it run on 187 if 187 is the default ruby installed on os 10 then fine let it run on 187 um you know it's well, no longer on end of life versions of os 10 sure but like why not or whatever whatever linux server you have it had 187 on it and you want to run and you want to use appraisal why shouldn't you be able to uh i mean the same reasons that you shouldn't support ie6 <laughs> Except that the the support cost of supporting one eight seven is a lot lower than supporting one eight supporting IE six or whatever you know. Uh, it, I mean, it depends. Like, yeah, if the if the support cost is you use the hash rocket, then use the hash rocket. But right. depending on what you're doing, the support cost is a lot higher than that. Right. And for one nine, even uh, like well, for Rails anyway. Like, there's a lot of stuff that gets cleaner and faster once we can drop 1.9 support because we can rely on things like being able to take an unbound instance method off of one module and pass that into another module <laughs> for a defined method. What is the Rails 5 Ruby version that they're targeting? 2.2? 2.2. Okay, cool. A symbol GC is huge for us. And required keyword arcs. That's the big thing that I... You get that with 2.1. But that's like when we did Scenic, we were like 2.0. Well, point... we couldn't even rely on optional keyword arcs. Those are 2.0. Right, that's true. When we did Scenic, we drew the line at 2.1 because we wanted to use required keyword arguments. But it is another. that's another thing we considered is like, what is our support story here? Like, I think the gem file says 4.1 plus. 
like Rails 4.1 plus, but we only test against 4.2 because like writing a library as a plugin to Rails requires that to really test it, you have to have a Rails app to test it against. And switching, like having a shell of a Rails app that can run under Rails 4, Rails 4.1, Rails 4.2, Rails 5, like that's obviously coming. Like I'm going to have to test against Rails 4.2 and Rails 5. And you end up having to put like conditionals in your app in your application.rb to let it run that way and it's still just it's just not a great story what our spec does is they run the rails generator and then write their specific files because generally speaking the files that are relevant to what you're doing aren't actually going to conflict with like what rails generates because you're just creating new test files basically right yeah we have a let me look this up right here they're also testing the Rails gen or their generators as part of that too, which is part of why they do it that way. But right, we have we do the same thing where we have a spec smoke batch file or bash file. Did I say batch file? Wow, I let your <laughs> you've been talking to me about Windows. Too I much. let your Windows talk get there. But basically, does it generate a new Rails app? It doesn't look like it generates a new Rails app, but it sets up a git commit like in the dummy Rails app directory directory, and then reverts to that commit at the end. So it runs the generators, verifies that the files are out, like runs the migrations, verifies that the views exist, like that type of thing. And that's all written as a bash script because Caleb found it easier that way. So what you're saying is you have no idea if Scenic works on Windows. <laughs> that's right. I do have no idea. <laughs> Patches welcome, Sean. Well, let me get let me get the Rails suite green first and then we'll look, and then we'll see. Okay. It should be fine. I don't know. I access files. I probably throw some slashes in there, but I bet it handles that okay. I got the uh, Active Record Suite green on Windows today. All right. Or at least for SQLite. I haven't determined if it if Postgres and MySQL are also green, but there it was just it's mostly just weird stuff like we were keeping a file open and Windows won't let you delete files that are opened by another program, but apparently Unix will. So we had a test failing because of that and then a bunch that were failing because we set the TZ environment variable to America/New York and then do some stuff, assuming that we're in Eastern time. And the t while Windows does follow the POSIX stuff for the TZ variable and has the set TZ C function and the global variables that get set by that, instead of like instead of having a TZ or zone info file and doing lookups based on that, instead it always expects the TZ environment variable to be three-letter time zone name for standard time, followed by the UTC offset, followed by the three-letter time zone name for daylight time. So on Windows, instead of America, New York, it needs to be EST5EDT. Right. So you just have a conditional in the code for that now? Yeah. And RubyGems has a module method that's that checks if it's Windows because Windows, you can check the Ruby platform and compare it that way, but Windows actually appears as one of four different things. What do you mean one of four different things? It can either be MS Win, MS Win 64, Ming W, or 64 uh, underscore Ming W. I want to know the story behind Ming W. That's always baffled me when I see it. It's just the minimal GNU implementation for Windows. Oh, now I know and the story you, behind it. If, you, if Ruby shows up as MingW, uh, it's because you used the one-click Ruby installer. Ah, okay. Interesting. Um, oh, we should do that wrapping up thing. Oh, yes, right. <laughs>
Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 45. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends or leave us a review on iTunes. If you have feedback about this episode or any others, you can tweet us at underscore bike shed, email us at host at bikeshed.fm or leave feedback on the website. Thanks for listening to the Bike Shed and we'll see you next time.